Hi, you're listening to Vanguard, the podcast series of the Institute for Internet and the Just Society. From neuroethics to digital human rights, cybersecurity, and fair AI, we identify and explore themes of the digital society at the forefront of technological disruption and societal change. How can we ensure a democratic platform governance while balancing freedom of expression against hate speech? How do we fight bias in AI? How do we determine sustainable technologies? We discuss with experts across disciplines from all over the world, and we gather important insights to make sense of the world today. Welcome to Vanguard. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Kent Keel a neuroscientist at the University of New Mexico who has spent a large part of his career studying psychopathy with a particular focus on inmate populations. Our co-hosts are Faisal Sharif and Teresa Budyuko. Visit internetjustsociety.org slash neuroethics to find more about our team and the work we do. Sure. So, um, so uh, my name is Kent Keel. I'm a professor at the University of New Mexico and I help manage a nonprofit research institute um, called the Mind Research Network. Um, my laboratory does in neuroscience studies, neuroscience genetics, wide variety of different studies on uh, forensic populations. We staff generally, before COVID, we staff about 10 prisons, uh, five in Wisconsin and five in New Mexico. Um, and we, so we basically trying to understand um, all different types of issues that come up specifically with forensic populations. So um, how to help reduce bad outcomes, recidivism, substance use. Um, my lab is known for using, we actually have two now, uh, mobile MRI units that roam around those various sites and uh, inmates who volunteer for either treatment studies or research studies um, get uh, MRI scans. And so we do all sorts of image analysis from structural to diffusion to um, connectivity-based analysis, you name it. Um, and uh, we're interested in basically trying to help understand uh, why people do bad things and how we can develop treatments to help remediate that and trying to use the latest neuroscience to do that. So um, we're one of the only groups in the world that does this kind of work. Um, and I've had a long interest in law and neuroscience. Um, my started, uh, well, I mean, I, I did my undergraduate at UC Davis and then um, I went to the University of British Columbia to work with Robert Hare, who was known for his work in studying psychopathy and developing a measurement called the psychopathy checklist that assesses these traits um, in such a way that allows us to you know, help predict future recidivism, help predict uh, you know, risk in, for violence, future violence. Um, and I, after um, grad school, I worked at Yale University for about seven years, um, and then I was recruited here to my current post. In, in New Mexico. So I've been here 15 years already. So since you were one of the pioneers of actually studying the neuroscientific basis of psychopathy, and you hold the greatest, I think you hold the greatest volume of brain scans of incarcerated population. Um, and I was wondering what really got you interested in studying psychopathy? Was it, was there a eureka moment? Was there a general curiosity about psychopathy? What, what started it? Yeah, so um, it, it basically, as an undergraduate, um, I decided I had a great undergraduate mentor, and her name was is Deborah Long, and a professor in psychology at, at UC Davis. And 
I was her teaching assistant, um, you know, as a work study student to try to help pay off bills and things and pay tuition. And she said to me that um, based on, I was teaching, I was doing a TA for like a research methods class and um, it kind of just naturally, research methods just naturally kind of, you know, came to me or I had a nice aptitude for it. And, and she said, you know, you really think like an academic, you might want to consider, you know, teaching someday or going into, you know, doing a doctorate or, and that kind of thing. And so she sent me on an assignment, which was to kind of go away for this long weekend and, 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 and think about what are the things that you've always wanted to study and what would you potentially like to get up every morning and go, go research. And, um, so I came back with this short list and at the top of the list, you know, was, was psychopathy was one psychopath and how they get that way and how they develop and how might their brains be different. Um, the other ones were, you know, the brain generally just trying to understand using non-invasive methods, um, how the brain works and what happens when it doesn't work well. And then the other one unrelated, but somehow um, all intertwined was research with killer whales. And so I've always been interested in the, the top predator in the sea and um, how they might apex predator and how they might have developed language or other types of communicative skills and stuff. So we've done, still do a bit of that work, um, actually. But she, you know, we talked about psychopathy. There was no one at the time that had studied or done any brain imaging studies or none of that had been done in, in psychopathy. And, um, you know, she and my other advisors all said, you know, that you can make a niche here, you know, if you, if you become, you know, so you become known for the, being the person to, to do this kind of work is not a, not a super large field, et cetera. But, um, and so they helped me, you know, they, they essentially helped me get into grad school with Bob Hare. And, you know, he was, I was one of the only um, international students he ever took. Um, uh, and so most of the students were all just Canadians um, there in British Columbia. But anyway, so I, I got a chance to go work with him and then, you know, made a, a commitment to trying to do the best science we can in this area. Um, and it's kind of just continued to snowball. I've been fortunate to have a very good team um, and a number of people work with me for over 20 years together and a number of good, great collaborations. And so, um, and, and, and then but to get back to the kind of original thing, I think that I often have to give credit to my parents. My dad was a writer, um, and editor for a newspaper. And he would, uh, talk about this guy that grew up down the street. His name was Ted Bundy. And most of you are probably familiar with that name, even the diverse from all over the world, um, and we would just be like, how could this kid that grew up down the street from us, you know, develop into such a monstrous serial killer? And um, that, I think, when I went into, you know, grad school or I went into undergraduate, I was always kind of interested in how someone could develop. How could they be like that? And, you know, it's not an uncommon thing. I teach an abnormal side class and, you know, all 200 students in the class will raise their hand and say they want to study psychopaths or they want to do something. And then that very rarely do people follow through and actually go ahead and decide they want to make that their life's work. And um, anyway, so I just been fortunate to be able to study something, you know, that I've, that I just find fascinating intrinsically and uh, have always just been able to make it a career, make it a career. So, but I would say that Ted Bundy was probably one of the people like him and how they develop and how we can understand them, how we can try to prevent such things from happening has been really the, impetus behind my initial getting into into this field. No, that's great. So before we delve before we delve deeper into the more scientific terms, can you break down for our listeners what does it mean to be a psychopath? What are the main yeah. psychopathic traits? Sure, that's a good question. Um, I mean, psychopathy or psychopathic, you know, is is a 
is a term that's used in common parlance all the time, but from a scientific perspective, we have a very careful definition that we use. So um, throughout the years, you know, clinicians for, you know, over 200 years, they've identified this set of traits. And again, we're talking about personality traits. So they have to be uh, present in most domains of your life and they have to be present for the majority of your life in order for it to be a a trait. Um, So there are 20 characteristics that we currently uh, assess in everybody. And the scores on each characteristic are range from zero, this item doesn't apply to you. One, this item applies in many respects. And then two, this item most definitely applies to you. So the, the scores can range from zero to 40. And individuals that score over this 30 um, in the top kind of 15 percentile are individuals that will receive a label or, or term, um, you know, meeting criterion for psychopathy. And there are things like a lack of empathy, guilt, remorse. They're glib, they're superficial, they're manipulative and conning, and they lie. I, I like the word mendacity because it just reflects that they, they, they often make up stories. They're almost confabulated. It's just below kind of confabulation that you might see in, in patients who have psychotic illnesses. So, but it's, they just make up some stories and other things, even though they can be readily checked and they, and they just, they, they have a propensity to just make up a lot of lies. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, they're impulsive. Um, they tend to, you know, be in trouble with the law or with the legal system or some problems um, from very early age, before the age of 12, and they continue in adolescence and then persist into adulthood. So they have this life course persistent trajectory you might refer to them as um, for antisocial behavior. Um, and so the, the central characteristics that most of us really, that differentiate them from a lot of other populations um, is this lack of empathy, guilt, and remorse. And so this kind of complete inability to understand or appreciate how their behavior negatively impacts others or how it um, you know, can cause so many problems. And um, you know, they're kind of nomadic, so they tend to move around a lot. They don't get attached to any person, place, or thing. Um, and those central affective characteristics are the ones that, that we're generally interested in understanding, kind of the neurobiology and other things and, and stuff. So we, we do study the impulsivity and antisocial traits as well. I mean, it all kind of comes together um, in, 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 in that sense. But, but those are the central characteristics. And, you know, it's not easy to get a high score. I mean, it's only, you know, one in 150 roughly, you know, men will, will meet that criterion, that magical criterion of 30 or higher. Um, in the prisons, we tend to see... Uh, about 10 to 15 percent in New Mexico, general population of prisoners will meet criterion. And then in the supermax, it's almost 50 percent. Like they, the, the systems that are in place, especially in the United States and, and around the world, really, generally individuals that even if they're not assessing psychopathy in the correctional system, what you find is that these individuals that have high levels of these traits often end up in the highest levels of security because their behavior even in institutions is problematic. And so institutions then, in order to try to manage them, end up putting them into, you know, solitary or soul cell, you know, kind of stuff. Their movements are very controlled. They're not interacting with others in such a way that they're going to cause problems. They're, they're, so there's very different types of management um, is needed when you work with individuals that are in that clinical range. Um, do maybe other personality disorders such as narcissistic personality disorder or borderline commonly overlap with psychopathy and may lead to a misdiagnosis? Um, yeah, it's possible. We, 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 of course, assess all the various related personality disorders. Um, borderline personality disorder is really most often found in, in female popu- women populations. Um, and we've published a series of papers looking at kind of the overlap between you know, those two 
uh, issues. But psychopathy generally is not one of the old characteristics that Cleckley and others used to talk about in their books um, is psychopathy is almost so they're so self-serving, they would almost never hurt themselves. And so borderline is often associated with hurting themselves, cutting suicidal attempts, other things. And that really helps to differentiate women who might have those problems versus women who have, you know, these, these higher levels of psychopathic traits. And of course, you know, women are generally protected from having psychopathic traits for every, you know, it's, it's about 10% for every, you know, uh, 10 women or for every female that has psychopathy, you know, there are 10 men that have the, that have psychopathy. So it's a, um, it's very rare to see clinical levels of these traits in, in women samples. Um, and, but right. So hopefully I, I just asked, I answered your question. Um, Yes, uh, and because you mentioned it, uh, what do you think is the cause of the Y chromosome being the, the most genetic, the biggest risk factor? Well, there's a number of yeah, there's a number of different theories about the condition, um, and you know they're, they're not that well studied. So the evolutionary theory about psychopathy was that it it's evolved as an adaptive mating strategy, and I know it's kind of strange to, you know, in some circles it's strange to talk about this, but if if the the actual models that have been run suggest that, you know, if, if one in 150 men are very nomadic, move around, they move into populations, they're fun, they have sex, you know, and they, and they, they, then they leave and they move to the next place. It's advantageous to spread genes, you know, to spread your genetic material around doing that uh, for a small number of the population. It tends to break down if it's a high number that um, they go and do that because then the, the, the birth rate or the success rate for the children is low, and so then that's it doesn't work out. But there, there is this idea that it was a mating strategy, and you def, we definitely see psychopathy. You know, individuals with these traits have much many more children than individuals without these traits, and they the 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 symptoms and other things generally seem to uh, reflect that. Um, so there, the, that's one of the evolutionary theories that that's that's out there and has been discussed. Um, I don't think it's been necessarily well tested, but. Um, and the alternative is, is just that there are, you know, it's a normal variant of extreme, but a normal variant of, you know, individuals who, and, and temperament, um, and, and, you know, that, that some people just end up with these types of traits. Um, others have argued, you know, that it might just be adaptive to have somebody that can act like this or be like this, or is so non-conforming to things that they tend to generate change, stimulate uh, people to, to think differently or do things differently or to not just accept you know, what some leader might tell you, for example. Um, but we really, we consider it, a, you know, a personality disorder. I mean, they're not generally associated with much success. Most psychopaths, I think, I think the last estimate we did was like almost 80% are going to be incarcerated in any, you know, given modern country that you're going to, you know, run through. So it definitely leads to confinement and problems. And, um, you know, it, it has, they don't have normal relationships with family or friends or, or anybody else. But yet they don't suffer much interpersonal distress because of that. They don't seem to, you know, have any concerns associated with the fact that that they don't have many close friends or their parents don't want anything to do with them anymore, and they haven't seen their siblings in years. And um, but I, the cause, the exact cause of it is 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 really, you know, not well understood. We definitely know a lot about the neurobiology now. We definitely are doing more work understanding kind of the genetics of the condition and, and genes that might promote risk. Um, you know, and or be more associated with this condition, uh, and and it's so, you know, I guess you know, is it just a neurobiological syndrome or that's different? And and um, 
it, I, to me, I just refer to it as a personality disorder and it's really just the extreme variance, you know, of, uh, of these traits. Um, and it clinically, it, it really, when you meet someone who really has high levels of these traits, it's, it's, it's fascinating, you know, to interview them and talk to them and to understand just how different they are from everybody else. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really clinically is, is interesting. And, and that starts from an early age already, right? So, um, would that be a chance even to, to, you know, go to someone who is maybe in their adolescence or, you know, um, early teens and to do some sort of intervention? Or is that really already ingrained at that stage? So, yeah, there, there's been, well, first of all, there's been a lot of work in recent years looking at measuring the development of these traits early, as early as five, six, seven, to try to help understand um, earlier with the idea, of course, being that you know, addressing parenting problems and addressing, you know, environmental problems might help curtail the development and the crystallization really of those traits. Um, certainly by adolescence, uh, we, we have robust measures for assessing uh, the traits in, in kids um, and we use them in our adolescent work. Um, and the, but, the, but the good news is that there, there have been some great, you know, strides in making uh, in, in some forms of treatment. So there's a cognitive-based treatment program in Wisconsin, it's called the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center. Um, and the program they use is a contingency management based program. It's kind of positive reinforcement based. So very small, but but firm, negative you know, punishment for, for things. But then you really are leveraging the idea that the positive reinforcement is still functions just well for learning and training of individuals with these traits. Punishment doesn't seem to work at all. Um, and if anything, you get kind of a, um, uh, if you punish them, they just kind of react against that type of, of behavior, but rewards, they appear to be very receptive to rewards and they can learn to change their behavior. And this, what this treatment program has done has many different levels to the program, but, um, in the intensive year long treatment, they, they end up being able to show at least one outcome is reduced violence. So it's a 50% reduction in, in violence outcomes. Uh, out two, three years. I've replicated that a couple of times. And so this juvenile treatment program gives us a lot of hope that we can develop other forms of treatment that at least can help to reduce the, the cost of violence of that type of bad outcome from, from occurring. And that has been, um, you know, we've been working with that facility for a long time. We've been studying and scanning the brains of these kids as they go through treatment, trying to understand is the brain changing with the treatment and does that provide protective you know, um, functions that's, you know, we're right in the middle of that study. So right now, and then COVID, you know, of course has interrupted us for a year, but, um, we'll get back to that as soon as, as everyone gets vaccinated, it should be the next month or so. So, um, but it, it, it just has been a unique, um, you know, opportunity. And, and the strange thing too, about our field in general is that in terms of psychopathy treatment, there has never been a published randomized clinical treatment program for psychopathy ever. And that's kind of striking to some, you know, given, you know, that, that, that the overlap with these, um, you know, with other, um, you know, substance use, there's millions of treatments and studies to help identify and treat substance use or alcohol and drug abuse. And, um, but no one has tried to specifically treat individual psychopathy. And there's kind of this general, I think, you know, tone that they're not treatable. And I think the juvenile treatment program in Wisconsin has shown that, you know, if we try to develop a program um, and, at, and at, at, at least we can show that we can reduce, you know, antisocial outcomes, you're not, not be curing their 
psychopathy, but we're able to help at least reduce one of the bad outcomes that we'd all like to you know, minimize. So, so that, that's been giving me a lot of encouragement. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote, you know, my book was um, the psychopath whisperer was because it's those guys, those treatment providers in Wisconsin that have developed a way of actually, you know, altering the trajectory that most of these kids would have been on had they not uh, gone to this program. That sounds very promising. And um, we'll love to talk a bit more about that later on as well. Um, one thing I've been always wondering, and you just mentioned that 80% of um, individuals with psychopathic trait or psychopathy um, will be incarcerated during their lifetime. Um, what do you think about, you know, those reports saying that, you know, 20% of CEOs some have some sort of psychopathic traits? Um, you know, do you really see sort of a correlation between sort of um, the ability to mask psychopathy and IQ in those sort of areas? Do psychopaths know they have psychopathy? Do they sort of um, make use of that? How would you sort of describe that um, argument? Well, so uh, these traits do exist on a continuum. And so, you know, you'll, the average kind of North American will, male will score like four out of 40. Um, but even if you meet someone who is in the 15 to 20, you know, range, so still well below the average, you know, inmate or forensic person, you're, you're going to recognize that that person's a little different. Um, and so, and, and generally you're not going to necessarily have great interactions with that person. So at some point, They're, they're going to cause some distress or interpersonally. I mean, my friend Gina Vincent always liked to say she doesn't even want to date a five. You know, she doesn't want to meet anybody or go out with anybody who has high levels of these traits because it's just not conducive to long term success. Um, as it relates to, you know, the business world or these traits in the community, certainly, um, you know, individuals who aspire to manage companies or large Uh, you know, they may have more of the glibness, they may have a little bit more of these other traits. But I think it's generally very rare that you're going to have somebody um, who's in the clinical range ascend to a position, you know, like that. And I, I, it's not going to not happen, but I certainly wouldn't think the rate's going to be very high. They're just not conducive to making good decisions. Um, so but if you get somebody who even has moderate levels, not necessarily clinical levels, but moderate levels, it, it's just going to not be an, a, a good interaction. You're just not going to want to, I wouldn't think that that company would do well, to be honest with you. Um, whereas some people tend to also confuse, you know, that if CEOs have to make decisions, you know, like laying people off or cutting, you know, people, I mean, we just, this last year we had to make brutal decisions about, you know, staff because we couldn't go back in the facility. So I had over 30 staff who I had to furlough them half time. So they still keep all their benefits, but they, they were still, they were, had to go down to half time at, at minimum. And then You know, we, we had to, it was difficult to make those types of decisions, but, you know, to, to maintain your, you know, financial prudence and, and save your grant money so that you can actually, you know, complete the projects that NIH is paying you to do, um, you, you know, you do have to make some tough decisions. But um, so I, I don't necessarily agree, and I don't think there's great data that, that most or there's a large number of CEOs that have clinical levels of these traits. I, I've met a lot of people in business and over the years and, Do a little bit of consulting in this area and I, I don't generally see anyone that would I would say meets clinical criterion they their their behavior is so problematic they just never normally ascend but again you get somebody that even has average or lo low levels of these traits like in the 15 to 20 and and that's problematic I mean they're not clinical levels but they're they really are a challenge to work and, and manage and I can think of a few people right now you know in academia that 
Um, you know, I was even warned before I moved to New Mexico and I was in Connecticut that there was somebody, you know, in the administration at UNM that was just a nightmare to work with. And it's absolutely true. Like there, there is uh, some individuals that um, for whatever reason, they're not, again, not clinical levels of these traits, but enough levels of these traits that, you know, I get asked all the time, do you think that guy's a psychopath? You know, do you, and I'm like, you know, it's, it's um, for sure you can, it, it just causes problems. So anyway, that's, that's my take on kind of the business world is that it's, it's um, extremely unlikely that you would get someone to, to, to score in these kind of clinical levels that would descend to, you know, such a position, but even moderate levels of the traits will be problematic. Um, so I think what's really interesting is that for most of us, our first contact with the idea of psychopaths is through the media and sure. pop culture and TV, for example, Hannibal Lecter or Dexter or Patrick Bateman from the American Psycho. So based on your actual experience, do you think that this portrayal is true to life? And is perhaps the media often responsible for maybe sensationalizing or even romanticizing the idea of psychopaths? Yes, yes absolutely. Um, I don't think there's very good, true, uh, there's a couple of older movies. There's, there's one, it's very disturbing movie. It was actually banned for a long time in the United States, I think, or, or blocked, or you couldn't get it. Um, it's called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And that was probably the most uh, accurate and just kind of brutally honest portrayal of an individual with high levels of these traits that, that, that I've, I've seen. But the Dexters and the others, those are, you know, those are all Hollywood idealized, you know, individuals that um, don't have any real basis in real life that um, you would see. I mean, psychopathy is so common, you know, in the sense that, you know, these traits, when you see them and, and you read the books and you read the characters and you understand them, I'm surprised there hasn't been, uh, you know, more accurate portrayals in, 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 in the popular press. And then, of course, you know, the media often just confuses the term or will label anybody who does something bad as psychopathic. And so even though if that individual doesn't meet criteria. So just doing like one bad thing or even two bad things doesn't usually help, you know, get a clinical high score. You really have to be thoughtful about how you assess the traits and use the, use the assessment carefully and accurately. Um, and when you do, then you, you really do, you know, identify an individual that's at the highest level of, uh, you know, getting in trouble. So, um, but I, 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 we often in my class, some of the classes that I'll teach, we'll actually go score people like Dexter or we'll review those types of cases. And, um, you know, students really enjoy those kinds of exercises to, um, you know, understand that Dexter turns out doesn't, doesn't actually score over 30. He's, he's so controlled and, you know, he cares for his family. And I think he had a child in one year or whatever, like he's, he's, he doesn't have all of those traits. He has some, different some problems, but he doesn't necessarily have the, the clinical levels of these traits. Um, and so that's a helpful exercise, I think, for people to go through when they're trying to understand or, or learn about the assessment. Um, and, and so it's, it's sometimes surprising. Well, there's two things I can tell you about the assessment that are really easy. It's, it's very easy to score somebody who scores low, you know, like, um, and it's very easy to score someone who scores really high. Like sometimes we're, you know, it, it's you meet somebody who has extremely high levels of these traits and, you know, you just can go right through and be like, oh, this is so easy, you know, to give them a two. And and it's almost like it's almost like this, there's not a high enough score for them. And so, again, we're using an instrument. So it's an approximation, right? It's just a it's a it's a tool that 
is good. But I've often had people where I thought like, man, this guy's a 50 out of 40. Like there's just no way that we can capture how different this person is, you know, on a typical, you know, psychopathy scale. Um, it's kind of like people have really high IQs, you know, it's really hard to, um, you know, to assess that IQ accurately, you know, with standard tests. They're just not designed to measure outliers, to measure people who are, you know, really two, three standard deviations away from, you know, the population mean. And so the, the farther, the more abnormal you are, the harder it is to, to develop an accurate assessment of that pathology. So that's one of the reasons why the neuroscience, I think, comes into play so nicely is that um, it really does help us differentiate, you know, those that score that are different. There, there's, there really is robust differences. And that's one of the other reasons why we like to use neuroscience to help us predict things, you know, if we, um, because it adds another level of measurement that we're just not capturing with our psychological instruments. And, you know, the, as you guys all know, the brain imaging data doesn't care what the, you know, about your psychopathy test or anything like that. It just gives you a number and we can see if that number fits, you know, in some algorithm for prediction or whatever we're doing. And um, so that, that's, that's one of the nice things about the imaging science that we do. But um, yeah, so the, so anyway, I hope I answered that question. Um, you asked earlier also about IQ. And so most, most individual psychopathy, there's a small correlation typically that you see between psychopathy and IQ, positive correlation. So individuals with psychopathy are generally slightly scoring higher on IQ tests than their otherwise, you know, peers in the forensic institutions. Um, and, but it's definitely not uncommon to find you know, individuals in IQ in the 130, 140 who have really high levels of psychopathic traits. I've definitely, you know, interviewed a few who, who were like that. Um, a couple serial killers actually that were like that uh, and um, just very different. And, and it's almost like they have no, what we refer to as, as emotional IQ. You know, we, we study EI in, in a variety of different contexts and psychopaths are generally very bad at, at um, emotional IQ related, you know, assessments. But they, their regular IQ is, is just unimpaired. Um, and so we don't see that associated with, with psychopathy. And now sort of like going back to the imaging studies that you've mentioned, right? It wouldn't be too far-fetched to say you are some sort of modern mind hunter, just not working for the FBI as far as I'm concerned. Um, and um, sort of, you know, you went on and studied hundreds, if not thousands of, of psychopaths in prison environments um, using a so-called portable MRI. Maybe you could um, explain to us also how that looks like, how that works. Um, how many, maybe, how many prisoners did you scan? What were the inclusion criteria, and sort of, what were the main outcomes of, of those studies? Sure. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we have uh, essentially started, you know, working with uh, all friends populations. So we work with men, with women, with adolescents, with friends of psychiatric populations. We've even worked with civilly committed men. Those are sex offenders who have been determined by the state to be so high risk that they've been committed for treatment post finishing their jail sentence or prison sentence. Um, so we, we've worked with all these various populations. Um, the, the mobile MRI is a, is a, a, a Siemens, uh, you know, 1.5 T standard clinical magnet that has been installed essentially in a semi trailer. Um, and so we tow it around, rent a truck and tow it around to different sites. Um, and it's completely self-contained. And so it's the RF shielding and everything, even the, the you know, the, the, what's called the five gauss line is completely contained within the trailer. So it's on all the time and, and um, you know, it roams around to the different sites. We generally send in staff to do interviews and assessments for 
almost 12 hours worth of clinical interviews, um, IQ testing, neuropsych testing, brain injury assessment, like all sorts of other tests are done to try to, and to try to understand everything that that person has experienced or might have problems with, it, et cetera. So um, if they've had, a, you know, concussions, if they've had, you know, like I said, chronic substance use or other problems, so we try to capture as much detail as we can about the person. Um, and we generally try to let as many people participate in it as possible. Um, and for, for specific studies like papers, you know, we might have to exclude individuals who had a, a brain injury or might have to exclude individuals who had any form of psychosis in their family or in themselves, you know, in order to try to, um, you know, relate and generalize to, to, to different papers and populations that we're studying. But for psychopathy, anyway, so the, the mobile MRI is, is um, ha, has definitely been, you know, probably one of the most unique uh, aspects to the research that we've done. In fact, um, we're so busy, we actually just got another one last year. So um, we now have two of them. One one will primarily work in Wisconsin and one will primarily work in, in New Mexico. So the staff go in and they do all these interviews and assessments with the inmates. And then the machine will come in and scan, you know, continuously for maybe a month at that facility where the assessments were all done. And then it'll move on to the next facility. So we try to keep it busy um, by rotating around the various, you know, sites. And then we have a series of treatment studies and things going on where we're looking at like mindfulness meditation for treatment of, of alcohol related problems. And so we, we study, you know, before, during and after treatment to try to see how the brains might be changing, how that imaging data might help predict um, who does well in treatment or who doesn't do well in treatment and who relapses when they get released. In terms of the findings for psychopathy, I think it's it's been fairly consistent. So, um, you know, it's one of those rare times in academic life when you you know, you design a study, you write a grant, you get the funding from NIH, you get the MRI, you know, um, you know, built and done, and then you send it into this facility and you have, you know, you spend two or three years collecting, you know, two, 300 subjects at first. And, um, and then you have a postdoc who comes in, it was, comp- you know, brand new. And the first thing they do is they go analyze that data and then they show up in lab meeting and they, exactly as you predicted, there's these regions that are, you know, showing less gray matter and then uh, in psychopaths compared to non-psychopaths. And, um, or, or even a correlation as actually was first first shown. And, and what we generally see is that parts of what's referred to as the limbic system. So um, the cingulate gyrus, the orbital frontal cortex, the amygdala, um, posterior cingulate, and, and insula. Those, that those, and I refer to it as the paralimbic circuitry. So this, this circuitry is generally what we're finding um, is that about 5 to 7% less gray matter in those areas the higher you score in psychopathy. So those in the clinical range have five to 7% less gray matter there than does their uh, otherwise, you know, forensic control. So inmates who score low, you know, on psychopathy. And we've shown that in, in hundreds of adult men, we've shown that in um, hundreds of juveniles um, scoring supermax kids. So kids in the very highest risk, you know, facility in the state of New Mexico. We've shown it with a, a smaller sample, but of, of, of women, girls, actually teenagers, um, uh, the same effects. And so we've been able to replicate this across all of those different samples. Um, and we continue to see the same, you know, regions implicated, um, regardless of like substance use history or brain injury history or other things. Um, and so that's been a fairly, very consistent finding. And so this was Elsa Ermer. She was one of my postdocs years ago, and she did a lot of the analysis, um, you know, and, uh, it's very straightforward, you know, voxel-based morphometry, that's a very common technique. And, and so, again, we're just seeing that just like they have a weaker muscle there. They just have less gray matter there. Um, and that's been, again, one of the most consistent findings. We've got a 
series of other papers and studies looking at various tasks, moral decision-making, impulse control tasks. And, and they generally show that the regions that we see this less gray matter, we also see less hemodynamic activity. We see less connectivity. Um, and so those are the similar types of impairments, just different modalities. Um, we have a series of papers showing that you know, white matter tracts, specifically the uncinate fasciculus, which is a, a, a tract that connects the frontal and temporal lobes, appears to be weakened in individuals with, so it's less thick, if you will, in individuals with high psychopathy traits. And it, it's an interesting little bridge because it degrades in something called frontotemporal dementia. And, and, and patients with frontotemporal dementia develop, there's a behavioral variant that is a pseudo-psychopathic-like variant. And I've actually worked on a couple of cases where people have committed very bad acts of violence um, and their MRI scans have shown that they had this this behavioral variant. There's been a series of papers published recently by other neurology groups showing that it can lead to extreme forms of violence when this circuitry is degraded um, in that illness. But we also see that in, in psychopathy. Um, and those are the same regions, by the way, the, 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 that that uncinate fasciculus connects to that we generally see are very different in individuals who committed homicides, very different in individuals with high levels of psychopathic traits, are very, and they're very predictive of, of future recidivism. So though, you know, we're, we're currently analyzing and writing up a paper, and this is a big ethical issue though, is that, you know, the, where the brain data is predictive of who commits future homicides. And so that's what judges and everybody want to know. Like they want to know, can, if I can predict who's going to commit a homicide in the future, what should I do with them? Should I incapacitate them? A lot of states do, you know, different things, but it's a, it's a neuroscience adds a new wrinkle to that. If, if it helps to improve that prediction, um, it raises just really important and interesting questions about, you know, when and how and whether that data, how should that data be used? And, you know, you know, what are the error rates and all sorts of other types of really interesting, you know, issues come up. But, um, but those are the general findings that we see that it's this paralimbic circuitry. You know, academically, me and my colleagues in this field, we might debate which of those different structures is most important, but we generally agree that amygdala, orbitofrontal cortex, um, and to, to a larger extent, cingulate in other regions, you know, are different, um, you know, in these individuals. And the cause and reasons why is something that we still are discussing and debating. And, you know, here at the Neuroethics Cycle, we love to sort of play devil's advocate and, you know, juggle around some sort of scenarios, some sort of ideas. And just to sort of give you some of the things that we thought about is, um, you know, you said that, um, you know, the... Um, the, the criminals, they, they could undergo those tests, those MRI face recognition tests voluntarily. What if sort of the prosecution becomes more eager um, on those sort of methodologies and it becomes forced? Um, and also sort of there's the question of validity, right? I mean, we, we are trained neuroscientists. We have a good idea of what statistics mean, false positives, all these kinds of things. Um, a risk score, a crime risk score is a neat, sexy number that, you know, um, simplifies a lot of things. Um, and, you know, will there not be the risk of sort of overemphasizing on those numbers? And, and what if, you know, a completely uh, innocent person has a very high score, um, you know, in a sentence based on that score? So these are all great, these are all important questions. I think that they, um, first of all, I think it would be very difficult to force somebody to do something because if you don't have, for functional imaging anyway, I don't think you'll be getting valid data if the person isn't compliant with the task or, or with the scan. Um, as it relates to um, 
you know, you know, you, you could judges, you know, I say that, but judges routinely, you know, compel, um, they routinely compel, you know, defendants to, uh, you know, provide DNA to, uh, you know, if you've been, if you've got a bullet in your arm and they think it's because the policeman shot you when you're robbing the bank that they can compel surgery, they can compel you to go under, you know, anesthesia. And so these are the, these issues are whether or not it, it's a, um, you know, is your brain uh, physical evidence or is it testimonial evidence? Because there's different procedures for those two things. So if you think that, you know, a picture of the brain or a picture of your brain while you're looking at faces, for example, um, is physical evidence, then a judges could compel you to do it. And if you don't participate, then, you, you know, you could get a longer sentence or something um, versus if it's testimonial, then you're protected you know, uh, you know, I plead the fifth in the United States. I take, you know, there's a, there's a, a self-incrimination. You, you know, you're, you don't have to talk to the police. So if your brain is somewhat being read, you know, you know, so that it can testify against you, then that would be something that would likely fall under the fifth amendment protections. And, and you wouldn't be compelled to have to go do something like that. You know, we, as scientists, we're always concerned about, you know, false positives, predictive accuracy, or, uh, you know, all of those types of issues. We've just found it surprisingly uh, useful in our in our equations and the things that we're doing. That if you do capture your imaging data, you know accurately, it does tend to help predict, um, you know, future outcomes. So in, in one study we um, published years ago now, we looked at uh, does activity within the anterior cingulate during an, uh, an an error monitoring task. So when you make mistakes and you see a big cingulate firing. Um, does activity within that cingulate region predict reoffending, and so above and beyond other behavioral and other measures, and and we found that it did. In fact, the cingulate activity was the second had the second largest effect size of any variable that we looked at um, in predicting future reoffending, and we've replicated that now in, in one study. We're working on replicating it and or testing whether we can replicate it in a, in a larger sample. You know, uh, right now, um, and so. That's a fascinating, interesting. What's what's interesting about it, I think, is that from a treatment perspective, there are medicines and drugs that can, re, you know, can reduce or increase cingulate activity, moderate it. And so, if we were to, you know, have in, inmates who had uh, really low cingulate activity, you know, take a medicine that increases cingulate activity in conjunction, perhaps, with some sort of cognitive-based therapy, would that help to reduce their risk for reoffending? I mean, it gives us a really clear target for treatment. And, and that would be, um, you know, just a, a really important translatable, you know, goal for the science is that, um, you know, that, that it might help reduce, you know, uh, as one measure, reduce recidivism, reduce, you know, relapsing to, to additional criminal behavior. Um, should it be used in somebody's, you know, risk assessment? You know, judges here in the United States and parole boards will often order uh, psychologist to come in and, and, and do a risk assessment, a risk needs assessment. What are the variables that this person brings to the table that promote, uh, increase their chances? So age is by, you know, on kind of unfair, but if you're young, you're more likely to reoffend than if you're old. And so age is always used in those equations. Psychopathy score is often used in those equations. Um, IQ, there's substance use, there's all sorts of variables that people have shown and promote risk and desistance. So giving you a job, giving you good social support, having being married, you know, there's a variety of different environmental ways that you can reduce risk. And so what they do is they, they'll, they'll go through and they'll run these equations 
and then they'll come out hopefully with a you know good evidence-based equations. Um, not all risk assessments are created equal. Um, and then they'll tell the judge, you know, this person is a low, medium, or, or high risk, you know, to reoffend, and we recommend the following, you know, uh, procedures be done. So maybe they're they're going to be said that they have to go to a halfway house where they're, you know, they're, it's like day parole, so they they can go out at seven in the morning and they have to be home by seven at night, um, and then go to work, they can go do whatever, they have freedom. But if they're not in that confines, because most crimes happen at night, then you know they're going to be. Um, that's how we're going to moderate their their risk variables or. Or maybe we're going to send them to some form of treatment to get rid of their minimize their substance use problems, you know, before we we send them back out to the you know out to the community, um, and and these are, I, you know, they're controversial, but they're also um, necessary. Like judges have to make these decisions. So as a scientist, I want to provide them with the most accurate algorithm I can. It's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be things that come up that make somebody more or less risk or uh, unknown things or. Or, or, and there's error and, you know, the, the, these, these algorithms will never be perfect, but the judge should have, I think, hope, and they want, they need um, to have the most accurate information you can give them. Um, and if that's imaging someday, I, you know, I, I would want to still, you know, ha- let the judges know that this is the best we can do today. Um, and, you know, it's, this is a high risk person. This is a low risk person. And, and here are the things that could be, you know, done to try to address those things. Um should imaging not be used in those areas or, or, or I mean, I, I look at it as just another unit of measure. So it doesn't, you know, um, it doesn't have any, uh, I, I don't know that it provides anything different than the other data sets that we use, you know, on somebody. Um, but um, again, I, I would just vote as a scientist and a member of the community, I, I would just wanna have people get the most accurate data. Awesome. And you you worked with hundreds of um, psychopaths. You um, talked about the, the the spectrum of psychopathic traits, and there's sort of like a clinical and non-clinical side um, of it. How would you say you know is the contribution um, of you know psychopathic traits to society? You mentioned there's sort of this genetic um, evolutionary aspect to it, but you know in general, should society tolerate um, psychopathic trait? Should we exclude uh, psychopathic people? from society and in which ways can we actually benefit from them right like sort of their social deficits may be of advantage um, in other areas of life yeah my, my general perspective on an individual with high levels of the traits is that they there's not a lot that they provide society in a positive way they generally I mean almost all of the subjects that I work with they've had just a long history of problems um, and divorces and, you know, a deadbeat dad, you know, statuses, all sorts of, they don't take care of their family, friends, children. And so I, I don't find that there's a lot of redeeming qualities in individuals that score really high. Um, how to manage it? I mean, I, I generally, I think, you know, if they've committed crimes, obviously there's, there's, you know, incarceration and then following that, I think that there's there's lots of different ways that I would like to see treatments implemented that might help to mitigate these things. But but really, it's monitoring. I think if you monitor them, if they have to wear like a GPS bracelet or something like that, so they know that with certainty, if they do a crime, they're going to get caught, um, would really help to reduce the chances that they commit antisocial behavior. Um, again, positive in, in terms of you know, I I I don't I just don't generally see that there's a lot of positives from 
uh, people that have really high levels of these traits. Again, there's some that argue that they might be kind of non-conforming and it might, you know, cause, you know, change or they'll be, you know, but I, I, I say that almost, uh, you know, with the, with a grain of salt, because if, if I just run through my list of like, you know, in my head of all these guys and, and, and people would have just been better off not having had those same interactions with them. Like, like it's, it's really is, um, they really do cause a lot of problems. And so that I, I struggled to try to come up, I'm struggling right now to try to come up with a, a, a some sort of valuable, what's the, what's the real intrinsic value of, of having these traits in the population. I, I really just think it's a disorder and, and it's associated with lots of problems. And so, um, and it, it, you know, even when you discuss these issues with them, uh, people with clinical those traits, they really struggle to appreciate what you're trying to tell them that, 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 you know, they, they just don't seem to understand lack insight into how their behavior has negatively impacted other people. Um, and I've read hundreds of letters, you know, from parents and people who just have to say, you know, I can't have any more interactions with the person. It's just so, you know, devastating. Um, and, and, and anyway, and that, 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 anyway, that's what we see. Yeah. And then just one more follow-up question on that before we sort of go to the ending section um, is so you're saying that you know individuals with psychopathic traits um, you know do not have a, a good standing in society do not contribute contribute to society um, you know mean that you know we should sort of force treat them that we should sort of do everything we can to um, to make sure that you know they get better or in case they do not get better are sort of kept away from society. So these are, these are good questions. I generally believe that, um, you know, preemptively doing something before a person has committed a crime, I think is problematic, um, in terms of incapacitation over history, there have been various attempts to try to, you know, uh, consider psychopathy to be something that is, that, that the individuals, with these traits are so dangerous that people have argued that it's, on, it's almost near certainty that they're going to commit crime. So maybe we should preventively detain them. Uh, I think that's, I think that's a problem. I, um, and, and I'm, you know, I, I, I would be very concerned if we were to try to start, you know, implementing something like that. Uh, I, I do think that there are, uh, you know, that the, that the traits can be managed. Like I said, if the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center has shown us anything, it's that even individuals with really high levels of these traits from really, you know, tough backgrounds and, um, can at least be taught to minimize their violent outcomes, um, that, that, that really kind of suggests that we should be treating them. I mean, but, but I, it should be forced treatment, you know, in prison, I'm absolutely for treatment, you know, um, is it coerced treatment? That's a good question. I mean, I think that what you do is you reward them. And so you tell them that, you know, if you complete these treatment programs, it's going to help reduce your sentence or it's going to help reduce you know, you're going to get paroled earlier, you're going to get day parole, you're going to get other benefits. So you, you use the carrot, not the stick to try to get them to participate, you know, in treatment. I think you could do the same thing in the community. You know, like if, 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 if there are people having problems with their children or, and, and, and maybe it's really related to these traits that there, we should be working on developing treatments to, to mitigate these traits, to, to help parents, uh, better understand the, the things that their child's likely to be going through, just like you would if somebody, has a risk for schizophrenia or prodromal, you know, is, is that you would want to educate and then develop programs and treatments to try to mitigate, you know, the chances that they're going to have really bad episodes or really problematic behaviors. And, and it's, it's a good thing to do that.
but it also has to be done carefully because, you know, you really have to worry about stigma. It's a real thing. Um, and it definitely can cause, you know, problems if kids get the wrong labels, you know? Um, and so doing that in just a, in a, in a careful way, I think is the most important thing to do. And, and, but I, I, I would advocate that we should be trying to treat them, um, as early as possible. Uh, and that, you know, even if the schools were to provide, you know, they, they could have kids, you know, certainly teacher, most teachers that you talk with, or if you ever do education, you know, these types of lectures, you often get teachers that come and go, oh, I always, I always know the kids that are going to get in trouble. Like, it's just, it's really easy for me to identify them. And, and, and they just have like a, you know, some insight and experience and they're usually pretty accurate. And so you would be like, well, what could we do to help mitigate the chances of that kids, you know, maybe we keep them in, you know, sports or keep them in, you know, after school programs, or we leave, don't leave them unsupervised, you know, like that, that's the, the only leads to problems. So, and then do some form, forms of treatment that try to help the kid get through that huge at risk period and adolescence. And then once they do, maybe then they don't, you know, they don't go back to that, um, you know, as an adult. So there's, I, I think there's a lot of things that we can do to try to mitigate, you know, these traits and minimize their expression. Um, and, uh, but, we haven't, there haven't been a lot of attempts. There's, there's, there's different research groups, you know, around the world that are, that are trying to develop treatment, but compared to other fields like depression or schizophrenia, I mean, we're a tiny little field. Um, and so, but for a very important problem, you know, um, and so I, 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 I advocate any attempts to try to develop, you know, treatments and, and, and implement them. And lastly, how can our listeners connect to you and your work and what are you up to most recently? Sure. Well, I wish I was better at social media and other types of things, but my first recommendation is I usually ask people to here, I can show you this, this might be like a shameless plug, but I would say you should you know, read the book. It's, it looks like it's inverted, but read the book. And, um, that kind of gives you, it's a fun book. And so it's designed to give you an understanding of psychopathy, how it's assessed. And it's also our, my trajectory of my career and some of the more interesting stories than people and characters that I've had a chance to interact with. Um, and if, if you like it, then, um, you know, you can email me and, and chat with me and I always send people, we try to keep up to date with, you know, sending out our latest papers and other things that we've done. Um, but I would say that the book is probably the best place to start. And then, you know, from there, look at the recent papers and things that we've done and, and stuff like that. And we just had a, you know, so much turnover. All of my research assistants have, you know, almost 20 of them are going off to graduate school, uh, next year. So we're right now we're hiring a lot of new people and kind of rebooting the entire lab. Um, And it's going to take, um, oh, it's just a lot of work. I'm not looking forward to all the new trainings and, and everything with everybody. But, you know, it's part of being an academic and part of being a, a teacher and a scholar is, is uh, you know, I'm happy that all of my, my research assistants have gone up and out, uh, you know, to, to, to graduate programs they wanted to go to. And, um, and now it's time to sit back down and restart and uh, get everybody hired. So I do have a good core group of people that have been with me for a long time. And, and uh, we're just going to be very busy and... Um, as we ramp everything back up, but, but th that's where I would start and, and recommend. And I get a lot of emails from people, um, and I try to help point them in the right directions to where they might be able to go if they're interested in this field. I think I can speak for the, for the entire group that, um, we got more and more enthusiastic and more and more curious about the topic. Um, and thank you as well for diving into sort of the, um, sociological, ethical, philosophical questions as well. Um, I think it's super interesting to sort of um, go um, go at this with a multidisciplinary perspective. Um, thank you again for your time. It's been lovely. Um, and yes. 
I appreciate it too. Thank you very much.